right, so let's just talk through uh, this case. Um, and what I, I think I want to get to, Hunter, is the the thought process behind, like when when the when person comes in, the assessment process. Uh, of course, we teach the same uh, system, but I want to I want to hear it from you in terms of how it 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 uh, affected or how it was effective on this particular client. Now, to set the context, why don't you just let me know who the client is and and why uh, this particular case was so interesting? Uh, the client of mine was Brandon League, um, and I recently on uh, social media shared some before and afters that were about three months or ninety days apart. Um, and what makes the case pretty remarkable is that he is a retired major league baseball pitcher. Mm -hmm. um, and with that comes the conversation around how uh, detrimental choosing a professional sport to play for over three decades um, can take a toll on the human body. Mm -hmm. And we always talk about at the courses how when you're working with gen pop um, or just like any other humans out there, we have a good job of trying to change their capacities and mobility and strength and that they just got to put the work in um, and they could probably do a pretty good job at undoing modern lifestyle. But when you work with a professional athlete, they actually have decades of a much more serious stressor put on their joints that we have a pretty big task to undo. So when they work with professional athletes, you sometimes have to manage your expectations about what kind of outcome, outcome can come out of it. So- Do you, do you remember how, how, when, like how long has he been retired for? Do you, do you um, I think only- four or five years. I think, I think he, uh, three or four or four or five years he came out for wrestling sports. And before we, we go into the actual, what was done, do you have uh, anything in terms of the small history in terms of prior injuries? Was he a righty or a lefty? Right, right throwing arm. Um, right. And my, my understanding is that he does have some shoulder injury history, but I think that's yeah par for the course when it comes to uh, major league pitching. Nothing, there was nothing overtly like surgically, uh, surgical corrections or anything like that, so at least in that shoulder. Correct. Okay. Um, so he came to you and what was, what was the complaint when he first came to you? Did he see you online? Did he see you working or was he interested in the, in the system or how did that, how did that come about? He, he was made aware of the system. Um, and he, I first met him actually at, it was the first FRC we taught in person after COVID. Um, he actually did the, the FRC in Costa Mesa last September. Um, and then a couple months later, we taught a kin stretch there and he took the kin stretch course as well. And I can see that clearly he's interested in the system. He wanted to learn more. And it was after a few months of him kind of tinkering with the system on his own. So he took FRC in September, took kin stretch a few months later. And then it wasn't until March of this year, just a couple months ago that he said, okay, I really want to come in for an assessment. Clearly this stuff is working, but I feel like I could streamline my processes. I feel like I can, I can make more progress if I get an assessment. Um, so then he came in in March of this year uh, to get a to get a full functional range assessment done um, and then get some personalized programming to get him on the right track. Okay. Now, you had said before, and, and for the people listening, let's just give it some context. Um, what Hunter was referring to is that it, from an evolutionary standpoint, it's not it's not normal uh, to be a baseball pitcher. I think we can all right. we can all agree on that. So, again, from an evolutionary perspective, at no time. Was it beneficial uh, to the the emerging organism to, you know, take a rock, throw it at an animal, kill the animal, and then run to the animal, pick up the rock, run back sixty feet, and then proceed to repetitively throw it at the animal with different curves and different uh, finger orientations? Uh, in other words, this is not a 
a normal human thing to do. So we always at a hundred miles per hour at a hundred miles per hour since probably he was like, uh, who knows, eight years right. old. Right. Um, so we always joke that when we go work with MLB pitch uh, teams, they'll ask us, you know, how do we prevent uh, UCL ruptures in pitchers? And the, the only real answer is don't be a pitcher. Uh, right. Of course, there's other answers, which would be to specifically understand the um, inherent threats of pitching and the repetitive force in, uh, insults that, that arise from pitching, and then to uh, hedge your bets against them by overdevelopment of specific tissue in order to, to uh, mitigate injury, et cetera, et cetera. But the general idea here is that uh, the cost for higher levels of performance are often the person's health, health right? So yeah. same thing with a hockey player. I mean, you have a, a human being who from an evolutionary patternized standpoint has been putting sagittal forces into the ground in order to propel themselves forward. You put them on a pair of skates. And now the idea is that you have to push to the side in order to propel forward. So then we have a whole bunch of groin injuries. Uh, people are confused as to why, but the answer is hockey. And the answer is, right. is that's not a normal stressor um, that our anatomy has been, uh, has been made used to. So of course you have to preemptively prepare um, those athletes for the specific uh, demands of their sport, uh, especially from an articular standpoint, or you end up with retired players who are uh, having difficulty doing anything with their joints. And for, for anyone listening, if you've never seen a slow motion capture of a baseball pitcher pitching yeah. it is almost sickening to watch to see the the shoulder joint which is a pretty mobile joint but it's used as a whip it's ultimately used as a as a as a high velocity whip to launch that projectile um but it really is disgusting the amount of range of motion it can go through um yeah. unnaturally when when you when you change the stressors of that person's body <clears throat> so that's a, that's a good point because yeah, so if you do go to that uh, to a online video of it and slow it down, you'll see that the person's amount of external rotation is inordinate. I mean, they're they're, oh, yeah. they're all the way I, down. I have a lot, and it sure, goes sure. that it goes that way at sure. the end of the pitch. And I think what's also important to note is that in baseball pitchers, that particular range of motion wasn't something that was acquired through intentful training of that particular zone. In other words that was strictly the result of repetitive rebound work where they, they just launched their arm into that position. Uh, and then whatever potential energy they can, they can save from that, that right. motion, they then put forward into the ball. So um, one thing that we often do with our pitchers is, is we demonstrate that even though that range is very attainable passively, uh, when you actually ask, ask them to actively go into the range or to actively try to come out of the range with any <clears throat> degree of force, uh, we realize that they don't have it. So I wanted to point Correct. that out because people often think that the, the athlete has this supernatural ability um, because they trained for that supernatural ability. But in the case for, of baseball pitchers, that's not something that was intentfully garnered. That's something that was, uh, was garnered as a byproduct of, of the abnormal uh, mechanics that is baseball pitching. 100%. Uh, now, why would that be important? Of course, we talk about that wherever you are, the only thing that's gonna mitigate uh, injury is your ability to generate force um, to counter whatever insults are being put into your tissue or to use the force uh, as an absorption mechanism so that you can, you can 
make use of potential to kinetic energy transfers, meaning that you could absorb that load because you have good quality stiff tissues that are able to, um, to absorb and, and then let go that, that uh, energy kinetically after you've, you've garnered it potentially. Um, so again, right before we get into it, just so the audience knows, <clears throat> this can actually result, and it, and it always does, in a torsioning of the actual humerus. So you find this in baseball pitchers, you find this in tennis players, where if you were to take, remove that humerus, uh, you would see that the bone has actually become torsioned. And now what that does, any baseball pitcher you have, because of the stresses of baseball, you have a crazy amount of external rotation, a, a limited amount of internal rotation. Uh, but because the bone is uh, reversed, you actually start at a, at a negative reading. So <clears throat> in other words, the amount of internal rotation is, is decreased even more simply because of the fact of that mechanical change. So you have this crazy amount of external uh, and this, um, this small amount of, of internal rotation. And unfortunately, some people take that information and then they go, so don't work on improving internal rotation. It, because you can't, because it's starting from a negative position, but it, that's like we know is saying, don't treat them like a human who has a human shoulder that wants to do human things after they retire. Just yeah. because they're starting from a disadvantage doesn't mean you shouldn't try and improve it, which is exactly what the case study is about. Yeah, and even if you can't <clears throat> improve it, just um, specific intentful work in order to try to mitigate what's what's occurring uh, is the case. So one of the reasons they say that is because people have this idea that your joint should have a particular range of motion uh, that's predetermined. So between internal and external. combined. Yeah, it should be something around 180. So the idea there is that if you have more of external, then somehow that minuses the need for internal, which doesn't make sense no. if you need internal rotation. And right. I always uh, tell uh, people when we're teaching is that at the end of almost every baseball pitch uh, is the act of internal rotation. 100%. So, you know, just because it's difficult to get, it doesn't mean it's not, it's not yeah, gettable. The, the, de the demand of the pitch requires more external rotation. No one's arguing that. Correct. But the demand of the pitch still involves some internal rotation and the demand of the human shoulder for health still demands some internal rotation. So to just say that they require more external doesn't just get rid of all the other needs of the shoulder. It'd be silly to think that. And then you bring up a good point there. And you know what? I think it's worth repeating and I probably repeat myself on the podcast. It's weird when you keep talking, uh, <laughs> you, you, you tend to say the same things um, That's all good. over and over, but it's worth noting uh, for people that the, the health of your tissue and the health of the articular structure, the articular system is what allows you to learn in time. <clears throat> so uh, we often say, that we'll, we'll say, you know, if I give you two baseball pitchers, right? Mm -hmm. And your job is forget about the, the health of their joint. Let's just pretend that all you care about is performance, right? Which right. You know, some people, a lot of people do, uh, because right. when, when we look at programs, what we often find is a lack of work being put towards maintaining the longevity of the joint, right? Right. Um, that's kind of coupled into warm up, so to speak, but as opposed to being a, an actual training uh, goal. Uh, but if I were to take two pitchers and your job is to take them from, you know, a 91 mile an hour fastball to a 96 mile an hour fastball. <clears throat> and they're both, you know, right-handed pitchers. They're both uh, same stature, same build, same everything. But I'll tell you that the pitcher number one has a, here, a history of rotator cuff tear, 
uh, with let's say uh, labral uh, fraying and labral surgery. Um, let's say they have an upper back injury, you know, sprinkle on whatever injuries that you commonly sure. see with these type of athletes. And then you look at the other player and the other player has none of these things. Um, so the first player, you ask them to do cars and they, they give you one of these, you know, where by the shoulder is coupled with everything else. And then the other player, you ask them to do cars and they seem to have a very good uh, control over their range of motion. They have good zone coverage. They seem to be able to execute strength in those zones, whatever the case may be. If I ask any trainer now, which athlete do you want to work with if your intent is to get that improvement the quickest? There's only one answer. 100%. Okay. And, and that answer is the healthy shoulder because the brain only knows what's happening in that external environment based on the information it's being fed by the mechanoreceptors that are providing the afferents from the joint. So what does that mean? That means that your brain being in a secluded uh, uh, fortress of bone, right? Yay thick. It, it doesn't have access to the outside world, right? So I, we often say that the brain is secluded. It's lonely, so to speak, in that it's, it's in a dark, damp place. And it doesn't know what it's doing. And I, I always say that um, so that people understand that you're really, you're, a, you're a, a system that is created in order to receive sensation more than a system that is created in order to discharge movements. The, right. the movements are a learned phenomenon that occur in time based on the information either coming in through the orifices in your head or coming up through the orifice in your, in the base of your skull, which is from the, the neural uh, information or afferents right. Right. that afferents comes from the, the the tissues so you can think of i'm going to get to you in a second hunter i realize that i'm interviewing you but you can think of tissue as the tool that the nervous system grows on itself in order to begin to understand the external environment so when you think of tissue as a tool that senses and relays information, um, you realize that if that information is clean and it's up to date and it's accurate, then the, the neural network would be able to learn whatever skill you're throwing at it at a much quicker time frame because it has up-to-date information. It knows where your arm is. It knows where your arm wants to be. It understands, it, it reads um, variables coming in as that movement's occurring and it's able to make minute adjustments in order to uh, hopefully be successful with the endeavor. So needless to say, the health of the articulation is the rate limiting enzyme, so to speak, as to how well your joint can learn. 100%, it sets you up so that with that example, the two baseball players, the one person who's healthy, you could literally just focus on motor skill acquisition, mm -hmm. just learning better pitching, just okay. the, just yeah. tweak, tweaking the movement, just actual skill acquisition conversation, whereas, Athlete number one, you have to gain back or get them out of pain, gain back range, gain back control of range, gain back strength within range, force absorption capabilities, et cetera, et cetera. You have uh, several other steps you have to do ahead of time. But with the person who has healthy joints and healthy tissue, it's just learning, it's practice. Which is, which is a, another important thing to point out that we often point out that we have to have an acute awareness as to the difference between practice and training. On the one hand, that athlete 
needed training hours or training time for the purpose of renormalizing the yep. these sensory organs. Whereas the other athlete, any uh, training time can be directly put into increasing particular capacities that might improve the abilities to pitch. So like you said, 100%. you can, with the, with player number two, you can skew it so that there's majority of the time spent practicing 100%. a minimal amount of time spent training in order to enhance that practice versus the other person, you have to enhance uh, training time, which comes at the cost of a decreased amount of practice time. But no one's doing either one of these scenarios because they're making them do snatches for time because that's what everyone should be doing right now. They're making them do snatches for time or <laughs> they're, or the other thing is that I find people do is that they don't realize that practice also comes at a cost. Right. So training, people understand that it comes at a cost because you're loading the body and et cetera, et, right. et cetera. But your practice loads have to be added to your training loads in order to understand a total loading pitcher for that particular athlete. Right. Load so, management. Yeah. So if you're outside pitching a baseball, you know, 5,000 times, I mean, that's a lot of stress on your tissue to come back in and say, well, a baseball pitcher needs rotational training. Well, they just did rotational training. So for, for two hard. hours outside for, at for high velocity hours. under high fatigue velocity. conditions. Okay. So now, now we're starting to realize <laughs> there's a little more to it than, okay. So let's, let's zoom out. And let's pretend you didn't know this client. So the client just came in. Sure. As soon as they walk in the door, what is in essence, the, the thought process that you take on um, that, I mean, you're going to explain, it's going to sound different than what other trainers do, right? Because we run a particular system, but let's try to get to the, the bottom of what is it when they walk through the door that, that we look at differently um, that people might be missing when they take on a client, no matter the client's abilities. Step number one, I'd say for me, but for us is to evaluate workspace because we have our rule, which is workspace over everything. So the first thing I'm going to do is teach someone cars and evaluate what I see in their cars. Like I, I can get a very quick picture of what can this human being's right shoulder do and from intake forms and information and referral information, like who the person in front of me, like I have an idea of what the demand of this shoulder is going to go through in their activity, or at least I'm going to find that out very soon. So I'm um, looking at what their shoulder is from a range of motion standpoint. And then I'm just doing a quick compare in my head of like the actual demand of that person's activity, whether that's CrossFit or baseball in this scenario. Um, and then there's a, a very obvious conversation to be had if someone has a as you described for people watching the video a workspace that is poor a shoulder car that is very limited in its space but the person's sport requires much more range than that there's already a conversation that has to be had around how we're going to spend the next couple months trying to bridge the gap between what their demands are and what their capacities are because that is what we do for a living as a trainer is I meet someone, I assess their capacities. What can you physically do with your body? What is your sport demand out of your body? And then my job is just to bridge that gap over time. So I'm going to give exercises or I'm going to give stressors or give inputs to try and make it so that when I met you, you were capable of doing this, but your sport requires this. And I'm going to try and bridge that gap over time by increasing your capacities. Okay. So <clears throat> generally, when you go into a gym, 
<clears throat> you're put into whatever the gym program tends to be, right? So if it's right. a kettlebell gym, likely when you go in, you'll be handed a kettlebell. There may be some assessment per se. Um, oftentimes the assessment is a, a movement assessment. Um, Dewey, Dewey Nielsen, one of our instructors, he's often says, never use movement to assess the ability to move um, because you're just assessing the demonstration of movement and you're missing the point, right? Um, and often making many assumptions. Assumptions, right? Because, right. Yeah, because uh, the human system, it's an emergent phenomenon and the movements that you create are also emergent phenomenon. And if you take a, a client, especially an athlete, um, they can emerge what you're looking for in a variety of different ways um, through compensation. And the, the better you are at your body or the more practice you have at your body, like a, like a professional athlete would, they, they often can overcome the, the test um, despite, you know, overcoming it, it with compensations, uh, except 100%. So generally you look at the person and what you're explaining to me is that you're not looking at them as a potential canvas on which to assign exercise. You're looking at the canvas and you're determining through the assessment of workspace, what, uh, where potential energy can be funneled in order to accomplish training work, i.e. what is the shoulder actually capable of in and of itself as a shoulder? Um, now, there is something to be a shoulder, um, which is different than to be an elbow, right? There is something to be a shoulder, which is different than to be a mid thoracic uh, motion segment. <laughs> Right. So you, people can argue about, you know, what it is to be a shoulder, but I think we're, they're splitting hairs because I think we're, we know full well what a shoulder should be. If I take any of my classmates from, from my education and I put 10 people in front of me and I say, assess them and tell me which one, which of these people has what you would define as a normal shoulder or at least closer, I'm pretty sure everyone would agree. What I don't think is that people mindfully understand what criteria they're using to define what the shoulder is like we know there's no pain range of motion seems to be good blah, blah, blah. but there there is something to be a shoulder and for example to be a shoulder is to be a rotational joint because mm -hmm. the humerus has to roll in the socket of the glenoid <clears throat> so you said that you, they came in and you let's back up you said that you was, uh, assessed workspace so maybe in your words, can you explain to me um, what workspace is? Uh, and then let's talk about why it's not even, I was going to say why it's important, but why it's not even an option. I mean, if you don't, you know what I mean? Like if, you, if you're, if you're sure. to assign exercise and the exercise requires a shoulder, then by definition, you should probably know what the hell that shoulder is, right? So, right. so is, there, there's a two, two main things that I say I'm looking for when I'm just doing it. And for me, one thing that I hate about the fitness world and their assessments is that people think that you could just like watch with your eyes one time and know everything that's going on with the human body in front of you, which I think is, we know is absurd because it's just too complicated that. So I am, I film all of this from multiple angles when I'm going through an assessment. It's a very thorough assessment. It takes a long time. So I have multiple angles of all my clients of their workspace assessments, of their table tests and everything else. 
Um, but I'm looking for, looking for just general range of motion. And in this case, since they're actively moving their joint through space, it is active range of motion. I'm not checking passive yet, although I do get to that. Um, but then the main thing I'm looking for is joint independence or articular in, uh, independence. Because if I see <clears throat> that the person can accomplish a large volume of space, which is kind of what we're deciding as workspace here is the volume of space that you could gather around your body with that movement, but it requires 17 other joints in your body to gather that motion or that workspace, that is not the workspace that I'm looking for. So I'm giving some cueing between a radiation and some conscious blocking strategies to try and see like, what can your shoulder do independent of spine, independent of your hips, independent of your elbow. And if the client understands the goal and they actually just try and like I said, trying to move the humerus on the glenoid fossa, scapula moves a little bit. But if you really try and get the shoulder to move by itself, you gather a lot of information about that individual. And that's one of the things that I posted um, as the before and after, not just the range of motion improvements, but I also showed the workspace improvements. I showed cars day one and then cars day 90. And it's not a major difference. It was only 90 days. This person had multiple decades of professional sports. So 90 days is a small time for an intervention where we are very early on in our programming. But in the first 90 days, one of the things that you notice in the before and after the cars is independence is coming back. In the, in the beginning videos, there's a lot of interdependence. There's a lot of scapula. There's a lot of shoulder hiking. There's a lot of hip turning. There's, there's, there's spine turning and there's just less, it's not gone, but there's less of it 90 days later. So he's gaining back shoulder independence. His, his body's getting back options. It's getting back variability within that shoulder because we're getting back one of the primary things, which is rotation, which is what a lot of our programming was about. Okay. Hold on. Let's go. I want to pick up on something you said before. So someone listening to this heard my assessment takes a long period of time. <laughs> now, I know the answer to this in my practice, but have you ever found it detrimental? Did you ever say to yourself, man, I shouldn't have spent all that time on the initial assessment? Like even from a financial standpoint, do, can you speak to how that kind of assessment would be beneficial to the maintenance of that person as a client because people have a thing like i have to work in this amount of time i have to fit in this amount of people and as i fit this amount of people in that's how i get myself busy um, but clearly you've trained in the standard model of training and then you've trained extensively in, in this model um, and you didn't do it so that you would make less uh, income or that you would be, have less clients so explain to me the process, like as you're doing it, are you pointing these things out? How does this affect the relationship with well, the client? For one, the initial assessment and then the recording of all the photos and videos is a non-negotiable for me. You can't like someone say, someone can't contact me and say, I don't want to assess. I just want to get into training. That, that's, that's not an option to work with me. And the, the reality is, is that um, I have to have a point A so that we can establish a point B and work towards it. If I don't know what your point A is, I'm just now doing what every other fitness person is doing, which is just throwing exercises at the wall and hope things stick over time. Um, I think my headphones just died. Hold on. I can hear you. You can hear me? Okay, so just my left one died. Um, and uh, it's, just, it's just not an option. So uh, the way that like Dr. Chivers uh, explained it at the very first FRA is you go to the doctor every year and you get a physical done, but it's not really a physical, it's a chemical. 
Mm-hmm. You're getting your blood chemistry checked once a year, your testosterone, your vitamin D, your calcium, your vitamin C, all, you're, you're basically checking your blood chemistry. But if, if anything's off, it might just be a blip in the radar. Like if your cholesterol has been like this for 10 years and then there's one number that's over here, you don't drastically freak out because it might be a blip in the radar. Mm-hmm. But for person B, where your cholesterol has been going up every year for 10 years, and now you went and now it's at this threshold, well, based off the trend, yeah, it probably is here. And you could now you have some information to know that you probably need to change your lifestyle, your eating, whatever else. So with the FRA, it's not it's like the physical, but it's a physical physical. So instead of a chemical physical, it's a physical physical. So when my clients come to me, it's their first physical. I'm physically saying, show me what your shoulder can physically do. Show me what your elbow can physically do. Show me what your wrist can physically do. Show me what your lumbar spine, your L5 on L4, your L4 on L3, your L3 on L2 can physically do. And it might just be a blip in the radar because maybe you're stressed out. This is your first assessment. Maybe you feel like it's a performance. Maybe you flew in to come see me, but at least we have a point A. Now we have information so that when we reassess in three months and reassess in six months and reassess in 12 months, we could actually compare how your body's changing. So we could say six months ago, your shoulder could physically do this. And I have videos and photos to prove it because that's why I, I video and, and, and take photographs of it. And now we did an intervention. I gave you pales rails. I gave you passive wrench holds. We did eccentrics. I gave you rebounds, whatever I gave you as your intervention. And then here's your shoulder six months later. So we could see if all of this was worth your time or not. So I'm going to give you an intervention, but I'm also going to prove to you that the intervention was useful. And the reason why this is so valuable is because humans forget they forget how bad they feel. You mm. you just, you exist as yourself every day. So you don't know how your shoulder felt 35 days ago. You think you do, but I promise you, you don't. Because the reason why I'm so adamant about the assessment taking so long and taking all the photos and videos is because I didn't for a while. I just took notes. And then my notes were saying really bad shoulder, this many degrees of flexion. And then I'd say like, no, like, look, I took notes. Your shoulder was worse than this. And they go, no, I, I think it's the same. People always think they feel the same because you can only feel what you feel right now. But Mm. if someone says, yeah, I don't know if the homework's working. I I think it feels better, but I can't tell. And then I show them video one and then I show them video two and they're like, holy shit, I can't, I don't even remember my shoulder being that bad three months ago. And I go, I know, which Mm. is exactly why we go through a thorough assessment. And that's why we document everything. Cause I want to show you that all this work that you've been putting in is actually worth it. It's important to me to actually document the process because otherwise, if I, if I let the results come from just you remembering how your body felt, and you have to remember that like, we're fighting for millimeters for some of these joints, like trying to prove to somebody that ankle dorsiflexion pales rails is worth it. We're fighting for millimeters with such dense connective tissue. And then people are going to go, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't think it's working. But if I show you the before and after and your ankle was at this angle before and it's this a little bit later, the work you put in was worth it because those little bit of degrees of freedom we got back, that few millimeters of motion offers so much more variability within the human movement, especially from a human gait standpoint. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 the documentation of it, the assessment of it, the fact that it takes a long time, I know people like that's a turnoff for some people because like you said, people are like, well, I only have an 15 minutes to work with my person or an hour to work with my person. It ha- We have to wipe the board clean and start over with how we're intaking new people because we, we have to have this documentation process for things to go well. And I think, uh, like I said, Chivers and Quint did a thing on this recently, like establishing the point, bay, point A mm-hmm. so that we can establish the point B is one of the most important parts of the process. Like we have to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they, so 
I think one of the most important things you said there is that, you know, like with your cholesterol levels, you have it here, you have it here, you have it here, you can see a trend. Mm-hmm. So with regards to <clears throat> your body, especially for things you're not monitoring, I mean, maybe someone comes in for a shoulder, um, right. you end up doing this FRA on their whole body. Um, 100%. And you find these other things. And these people are moving through these restrictions and f- coming to the realization that those restrictions are there. You know what I mean? <clears throat> they might've come with an a pinky injury, but when you bring them back here, you see you show your shoulder, how, when you're trying to rotate it, it, it hikes forward and your whole body comes forward. So in other words, they feel the assessment. Yeah. And then if you run that FRA at intervals, let's say two month intervals, three, whatever, right. however your programming lies, you know, if you put, if you, if you run a six to eight week block <clears throat> or a 16 week, but whatever it is, you run an FRA, you run it again. And then not only do you see the improvements, but you can also see where maybe you haven't been working on that ankle for a, a period of time. You've been concentrating your shoulder. So you see that ankle start to dip, right? Yep. And then you see exactly how the ankle dips. So that's another thing to, to report here. So in FRA, what we're saying is, is that we're going to check all of your ranges of motion. And then we're going to check them, not only from a passive range of motion standpoint, which in and of itself is, is, is of no use to us uh, other than sexy, flexible Instagram pictures, but we're going to check that those ranges against your active capacity, um, which is to say, how much control do you have over your ranges of motion? Now, why would that be important? Because as we know, um, performance and, you know, performance as well as injury mitigation or prevention come from the same thing. It comes from the ability to handle and deal with force. And to deal with force, uh, you have to have stiff tissue to absorb, but you also have to have active tissue uh, in order to execute strength when the tissue needs more tension. Um, so not assessing an active ratio or not assessing your active to passive ratio becomes dangerous. So an example would be if you can do 180 degree split, but you can only actively control 90 degrees, then from what we say, you have 90 degrees of empty space uh, whereby by you cannot deal with variables, you cannot execute strength, you have no experience with those ranges, ergo, um, they're, they're, it's dangerous. They, 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 right. you have, it's a range of motion where you're susceptible to being injured. Think, think of this just from the example that why we're here today, the, the baseball pitching example, because Brandon in this case is retired. He's had several years of retirement, so his shoulders already started to change from like that active pitching stress. Mm-hmm. But I've also, we, we have, but I also, I have, I've worked with pitchers in season, right? Mm-hmm. And their active to passive ratio for their pitching arm, mm-hmm. like once again, their, their extra rotation, like it can go like 90 to a hundred more degrees in that direction passively, yeah. passively only, but yeah, you yeah. ask them to actively move and they don't have much more than the average person when it comes from a control standpoint. And once again, yeah. which is why we use the term, like you don't own that shoulder. You're using it like a whip. And using it like a whip is going to come at a cost at some point. It's going to change the issue. It's going to change the structure of that joint. So then we have to, you know, we're training where we would take that gap and we would fill in that. We say we fill in the gap with neurology and strength. So we would take those ratios. And one of the first things that we do, well, first off, the first question is, do you have enough passive range of motion? People often underestimate the importance of passive range because we often say that, the passive range in and of itself is useless, right? Yeah. But what we're saying but people is, misquote us for that. Mostly. Yeah, they, you know, <laughs> you don't need passive range of motion. Well, of course you do. I mean, 
it's part of it's the it's prerequisite. Part of getting range of motion is yeah, it's part of the prerequisite. You need to have it, and then you can control it uh, in right. time. So the passive range of motion, of course, is important to assess. But the idea that the active range of motion has to be assessed as a comparison to that, such that if you bridge that gap, now you have range of motion which is defensible uh, and, and usable in terms of force generation or force absorption. Uh, okay, so you have all on this that topic, just besides the baseball, but I'll just speak on that because that's one of the largest populations I work with is the people with the biggest passive to active gap. So I know we're here to talk about baseball example, but like, since I'm in Los Angeles, I work with like the obnoxious LA yogi crowd. Like I always tell people, I say, I this don't know seminar, if you want like, to call them that on a, <laughs> no, well, it is, it is what it is. It, it, they, they, they call themselves that like it's, it's the people that do it just for the social media cloud. Like I train, I, I train those people. They know what they're doing. They're, they're very open about it. They're it's a business for them. Sure. So these people have passive range. Like it's a person who could touch their head to their butt with a palm tree behind them and a sunset. And it's, it's beautiful, mm -hmm. but they're in terrible pain. They're all in terrible pain. I train all of them. They're all in terrible pain. Yeah, let's not and, pretend that right. Passive it's it's not the more range of motion, the better. The, the, this passive to active gap that Dre just brought up, it's a, it's a huge problem in the modern human to just have tissue extensibility that goes so far beyond what your brain comprehends as usable range of motion. Mm -hmm. Is it like you could just keep pushing tissue limitations? It will adapt. If you keep stretching it, it will adapt slowly. But if you never bring some aspect of force or strength or control into the equation, those people do not live comfortable lives. They really don't because it's a, it's a large percentage of the people that I work with on a week to week basis. Listen, the, the specificity principle is not an option, right? So right. if you have a new range of motion, people will often say, you know, well, I do active yoga, whatever that means. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, you know, when I'm <clears throat> in the position, I move into the position or, you know, I hold the position, you know, for, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that even at the, the, the highest level, um, you're not pushing your tissue to the adaptive level necessary in order to push the right. line of strength of the capacity. Right. Like it's not people I'm getting stronger doing this. What are you, are you, are you getting stronger? See, strength people identify some working hard, Yes. As strength training. So I said, I, I worked hard in my yoga class. Yes. That is not the same thing as strength training. That's hard right. is not what determines strength. Before people get upset, I love yoga. I have nothing wrong with yoga, but we same. tend to tell people that yoga should be treated as a sport because that's what it is. So 100%. Anytime, anytime a human consciousness confines the variables of movement, you're playing in an artificial land. Right. And when you say, I want you to look like a pigeon, you don't look like a pigeon, right? I often use that example, you don't. Um, and there's no such thing as a human looking like a pigeon to the extent that I can critique how pigeony you were. Yeah, there's no uh, right way to pigeon. There's no right way to pigeon. I mean, right. it's just, it's just a, a body contortion that by the way was made up. Let's all, all the exercises you, the people named, they're made up. Like someone right. just said, hey, let's try this um poses positions like there's no there's nothing inherent to standing in this way versus that way versus that way um from a physiological standpoint these are just right made up things so if that is the if you're really into that that that's that's great but prepare your body for what you're doing but going backwards uh, let's not pretend that it it somehow 
bypasses the specificity principle because you're flexible. It doesn't. Right. If you <clears throat> open up a new range of motion, but you only train with, let's say, 15% of the maximal neural drive that, that you can put into that, that degree, then you're prepared for 15% maximal neural drive. Which 100%. means that if someone grabs your arm and, you know, if you're grabbing onto someone and they're running past you, if they're running past you with, you know, way more force, which requires you to drive 60% of your neural drive into that range of motion, and you've never practiced that, you've never practiced that. You're only right. prepared for what you've trained for, right? You can't summon up strength um, in uh, above what, you're, what you've trained yourself to be able to summon up. Um, so another thing I want to talk about with that regards to the FRA in general is, and it goes back to the idea of wasting your time, which it absolutely isn't. But with regards to this player, what some people might not realize is that, yeah, your, your baseball, you're pitching. So you're whipping your shoulder back. That whipping of the shoulder back is going to cause gapping of the anterior elbow. It is going to cause stress on the, the UCL. That, that's, it doesn't matter what you do. Right. That's going to happen. But what you might not have picked up in your assessment is the fact that the abduction zone of the lead hip is also restricted. Now, if you're listening to this as a trainer and you say, the abduction zone, why, why, what's an abduction zone? Why do I care? And why does the lead hip have anything to do with this? We have to talk about this, this thing called the kinetic chain and how people over-assume <clears throat> that they understand it or they, they're, they're far too confident in their understanding of the kinetic chain, which is to say that people often say, well, the reason for that problem is this, 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 and this. Um, and then I go, are you sure? Right. It couldn't have been something else. Cause usually if you say you have a right shoulder problem, I can relate that right shoulder problem to your left big toe. I can do it right now if we want it just for fun. Okay. Let's just... So your right shoulder um, has an insertion point for the latissimus dorsi, which is on the lateral lip of the intertubercular sulcus, or actually it's on the floor. So, which is to say that your latissimus dorsi causes internal rotation of the right glenohumeral joint. The latissimus dorsi, by way of Vleeming's work, is continuous by way of the thoracolumbar fascia between the right latissimus dorsi and the left gluteus maximus between the levels of L4 to S2. The uh, thoracolumbar fascia on the contralateral side then fuses and becomes what we know as the gluteus maximus. Uh, fascia from the gluteus maximus continues um, to add to the fascia coming from the tensor fascia lata, which then creates the fascia lata, which encapsulates the entire uh, quadricep and, and, and hamstring group. The lateral side of that fascia lata is a thickened area that we often call the iliotibial band, which is a make-believe thing. So technically, the right shoulder continues into the left glute, which continues into the left iliotibial band. Now the iliotibial band, one of the insertion points is at the fibular head. So now we're at the fibular head of the left leg, the fibular head as well as anterior. Now the fibular head continues via the fibularis longus, which goes inferiorly underneath the lateral aspect of the foot, hooks around the, media, the, mal the uh, malleolus, and then it's gonna end up on the base of the first uh, metatarsal, which is also where the origin uh, occurs for the um, 
uh, what's that called? The tibialis anterior, which swings on the other side of the foot to come up the anterior aspect of the leg, which also goes to that lateral aspect of the knee. So that, that, that sling between fibularis and the tibialis anterior, it, it hugs around the foot and, it, and they both insert onto the base of the medial cuneiform of the great toe. Ergo, all of your shoulder problem on the right side is because you have a shitty big toe. I'm done. Done. I understand the kinetic pain. So let's go home. <laughs> Podcast over. <clears throat> now, that's a bunch of bullshit. Like it's true that all of that right. anatomy was true, but it's also true to say that all of the anatomy orig originates and inserts into all the other anatomy. So technically right. I can run those lines anywhere in the body. Like people talk about running, you know, fascial lines, but if you're really understanding it, the understanding is, is that the fascial lines run everywhere to a certain right. extent, how you use your body is what be, is going to be what emphasizes or right. does these particular lines. I'm not saying the big toe on the left side isn't important. If anything, I'm saying the big toe is important. But what I am also saying is that I don't necessarily understand all of the reasoning as to why the big toe is important. Ergo, right. if I have a right shoulder problem and I also have a left toe problem, you probably should fix the fucking left toe as well. And make shit work nice. Just make the shit work nice, Hunter. Make <laughs> shit work nice. Uh, but yes, that, that's a, that, so getting back to it, I, we'll do the same thing with the hip. If your pitcher doesn't have abduction in the hip. So abduction, of course, if we did a cars, for example, I, I, this, by the way, I'm wearing a, uh, a baseball, not because of any- Right, pre, right, right. Pure coincidental. But if this left hip doesn't abduct properly, okay, what happens is, is as the pitch occurs, as you reach your level of abduction, and that's all there is, it locks. Now your shoulder has to punch forward quicker in order to compensate for that lack of being able to open up that hip. If you punch that shoulder quicker, you make a more acute angle at the anterior shoulder, which puts more stress there, but it also creates that whipping action where your hand is left behind, which is why you yep. get that crazy amount of external rotation, which is going to stress that medial elbow. Now, but if you have problems with that hip, it's going to cause that to be even greater. Ergo, if you have problems with your hip, that also needs to be dealt with. Yes. Can't, can't just come in and, and do the rub the boo-boo problem of saying, can you, can you just look at this, please? Which is how our clients come to us. They come to us as an identity around yeah. one joint. I'm the shoulder guy. I'm the knee guy. I'm the ankle case. I'm the big toe thing. I have turf toe. Like whatever it is, they come in and their identity is around whatever their most recent or most common injury is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But uh, uh, yeah. as professionals, we have to set the standard as I understand that, mm -hmm. but we're going to go through a full assessment because this is what's going to establish our point A for everything in your body. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and then and then we have it on paper so that we don't have to argue with it. We just see what it is. Right. And then we work towards making shit work nice. Right. Of course, once shit works nice, then we're going to layer on performance. So it, right. not to say that we stop at everything working normal. But that's the base point. Human is the base point. And then 100%. athlete is what we're creating uh, via pushing particular capacities in, in the person's internal environment. Yep. Pretty much. Okay. So <clears throat> you have this client. We've done the FRA. Now, another thing that people often get confused. Clearly, you're going to get them to do CARS. Okay. So CARS is <clears throat> the active exploration of their workspace, right? Now... When you, you teach the cars, 
you you almost assume for most people if they've ever done them that they're going to look terrible, right? Like mm -hmm. especially with a client like that. So I'm assuming his first set of cars didn't look nice. Not super nice. The ones that I have on video are after six months of him learning him. Remember, I assessed several months after he took the course, but they don't look nice compared to what I believe this the standards look look nice, especially when he told me he wants to do with his body moving forward. So, so, so they would have been worse had you have got a hundred. Yeah, one. if I could. If I can get everyone the day they learn FRC or hear about it or come across the Instagram, if I could just magically make you appear in my gym and do the first FRA on you on that day, the before and afters our system would have would just be outrageous. But normally people dabble with what they see on social media for a little bit, take some kin stretch classes, start to learn, get a little bit of practice, start to see a little bit of improvements on their own, and then hit a wall and go, okay, now I'm ready to get assessed. Okay, I want I want to I want to get that because they get a little bit of improvement on old and they hit a wall. Okay, so we always say this: untrained people are untrained, right? Which means any amount of training will be significant or sufficient stimulus right. to force immediate change. Right. So just like when you go to a gym and you start training and you get stronger, you're not stronger in that you didn't increase tissue capacity so much as you just worked on the organization of the neurology and the biology that you have. So people say, well, it's the first part of getting strong is just a neurological response. It's kind of right and kind of wrong. It's more mm -hmm. of a communication response. Right. Whereby if you exercise, you're so to, so to speak, introducing yourself to yourself. And most people right. don't know themselves to any large extent. This leads to the confidence problem in the fitness industry because 99% of trainers work with untrained people solely. Okay. So then they just throw exercises at the wall and their people get a little bit better because you could have thrown anything. Yeah. I, I've never I've never met. Oh, I think you muted yourself somehow. I can't hear you. There you go. No, now I can't hear you again. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Okay, I don't, I don't, I didn't change anything. So here we are. Look at that. Now you're back. Um, so what the hell was I saying? I said the confidence problem in the fitness industry. Oh yes. Yeah. So it's like you never meet. I, I've never, I've never met a, a trainer. I've never met a trainer where I say, you know, do you do a good job at what you do? And and the guy, <laughs> the guy or girl goes, no, I'm shit. Like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. To be honest, not good at exercising. I can't believe they allow me to rise <laughs> in any capacity. That, that person never exists. So, and, and a, a large extent of that is because, yeah, you're right. Anything makes you, anything makes you f better at the beginning in an untrained person. Even the feeling of doing it and the the here and now neurotransmitters released from the doing of it, the right. release of the cannabinoid system and right. the and the epinephrine and all these the serotonin. Oh, I love that stuff. It makes people feel better. Right. Um, if you feel better, you, you the, what you see in the mirror looks different automatically. Um, if you feel better, it's it's so there's there's a lot of initial stuff where if we don't take it to the nth degree and look at uh, at high level people. By what I mean, high level people, people pushing the envelope of particular capacities, then it's very difficult to understand how those capacities are to be garnered. Um, you know, when that person has experience training themselves, right? right. Uh, a trained person is very difficult to alter. An untrained person is very easy to alter, right. um, which is also one of the reasons why we say when you're training someone, 
you, your job is to find out where they're untrained and bring that those capacities up to speed. And that's where you'll get the greatest uh, achievements in training with the least amount of time. Understanding leverage points is the name of the game. Right. So, okay. So now we might as well go to this. So now we have that assessment. We have all of those uh, start points. Uh, you start to, now the cars themselves. Okay. We know this, but I'll ask the question as if I don't. Do they in and of themselves make the improvements that we're about to show? No. On, they don't. Okay. No. Obviously, I know that, but in your words, why and what, what the hell are they then, these controlled articular rotations? I mean, elevator speech, because I could talk about them for hours. Um, sure. they, they are the, the maintenance application of our system. It is to maintain tissue status, maintain capacity status, maintain health, bring health and nutrition into the joints. It is just like the analogy that our whole system uses. I don't, I don't even know who to quote it to at this point. The analogy our system uses, it's the brushing your teeth of your joints. It's mm. the daily joint hygiene practice that we get. You don't brush your teeth because it's fun and exciting. You do it because you need to do it for dental health. Mm. My clients don't do cars because they're fun or exciting. They do it because they care about their joint health. They do it because it's just the joint hygiene practice. But it is not the thing that takes a low capacity and brings it to a high capacity. It is not something that brings low stress tissue to high stress tissue. It doesn't bring up capacities. It We do have, as you know, training level cars. We can bring higher intensities into it, but the base morning routine, how we use it as an assessment and for a health practice is really about maintaining physical qualities, maintaining tissue extensibility, getting good afferents from that area to our brain so that our brain understands what to do with the tissue in that area. It, it is It checks a lot of buckets, but it is not the thing that improves which is confusing people because people think that they could just do cars and make their mobility better, but it's not enough. That is, that is not enough from a programming standpoint. Well, <clears throat> we often say that the vast majority of mobility drills that you find on, on YouTube are not mobility drills. They're mobilization demonstrations. Right. In other words, if you're telling me you have a mobility issue, what you're saying is I have an inability to move this bone relative to that bone. Right. Now, if you have an inability to do something, Doing it more is not going to make the ability. It's like if you wear glasses and I say, well, look, dude, just take them off and try harder. Just try to look harder. Fucking focus. Like, like <laughs> really get, really get in there, dude. Like, come have on. You, but have you tried to look? Are you really them? fucking trying? Or are you <laughs> wear these glasses? Yeah, you can't, you can't try your way into better vision, right? There's a corrective lens that's doing it for you. So we can build the corrective lens, right? right. That's what a good training program is. That that's is training. It's, tra it's training the corrective. Okay, so um, yeah, that was an important part to say that it's not, it's not do so in other words, those, again, those mobility exercises, if your joint can't move, then you can't move where you can't move. Right. right? So something has to be done in order to make you move where you can't move. Uh, and the follow-up of that is if you can't move where you can't move, you can't train where you can't move. So when you're doing a mobility, you know, demonstration, as we call them, you're doing, you know, you're on all fours and you're, you're doing these kind of things for your back. Like I, I, that's the best example. <laughs> if you're not moving between T4 and T7 and I say, well, do this. Today? What's that? 
You mean every adult today? Yeah, right. If I say, <laughs> if I say do this drill, well, clearly you're not going to move between right. T4 and T7. That you just told me that you're not going to move. So to say move there is like saying look harder. It, it it's not it's not a it's just that it, what you're going to do is you're going to show me that you move between T3 and T4 and between T7 and T8, whereas where you can move, right? So the idea of mobility work is we need to break open space in between T4 and T7. Right. Then you had said something earlier, which brought up our first rule in, in our system, which is workspace over everything. <clears throat> and that, what, I mean, that is justified by what I said. You cannot move where you cannot move. No matter how much conscious effort you put forth, you cannot move where you cannot move. You cannot train where you cannot move. You cannot make improvements where you cannot train. So, um, so yeah, the workspace over everything. So you, you have this reduction in workspace and doing cars demonstrates the workspace. Right. Uh, one thing that you, you mentioned brilliantly what cars does, but another thing that we can point out is that it also um, highlights your action maps. That, that's another can of worms. What's an action map? Well, your action map is your brain's perceived, um, perceived potential with regards to what your joints can do. So <clears throat> you imagine if your, your brain, your, the, the workspace that your body has to move into, the, the opportunity it has to move into this workspace is being determined by the information it's getting back from the, the afferents. So when you're showing the body, look at this workspace, all of the receptors are gonna light up the areas in the brain that are that are common to that workspace so your action maps where action can be made your three-dimensional um, construct of your external environment that is constantly being created in your brain remember okay so let's get deep here well that before you continue like that's one of the most important things that we've learned in the last couple of decades is like our cortical maps are plastic like that yes. is one of the most important things that people need to understand. Like you don't need to be even super interested in neurophysiology, but you need to understand that our brain is plastic. So by practicing your afferents, by practicing shoulder afferents, you are affecting the real estate within your brain that is afforded to shoulder, that is afforded to ankle, that is afforded to spine. You're literally taking real estate and expanding it. That's right. That's right. <clears throat> and you have to do it on your own. And it has to be done on an ongoing basis because like you said, it's plastic and the lack of utilization of particular areas of your workspace is going to lead to a dimming of the action map. Right. So it, it, either it's an adaptive process or a maladaptive process. It's either going right. to improve your real estate or your real estate's going to shrink, which is why like people say, oh, I don't know. I just got older and now my shoulder moves like this. You didn't mm -hmm. just get older. You just stopped using your shoulder every day. So you have the maladaptive process. Your real estate is shrinking. You get less afferents from that area. You get less access. And, and let's remember that your potential <laughs> is a construct of your, of your conscious and subconsciousness. Right. In other words, your workspace potential doesn't exist in the external world. It's like, if I say, Hunter, look at this marker. Well, where is the marker? Like you see the marker and you identify the marker, but is the marker here or is the marker that you identify in your brain? And like really- Really, the only reason you identify this as a marker is because of the evolutionary process that, that honed your sensory capacities to be able to put together the information as to the location or whereabouts of the individual atoms 
that make up this solid object, well, solid to you, but you right. made this object. Right. And this object right now lives in the back of Hunter's brain in his occipital lobe, right? It, 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 it's not here, so to speak, right. right? So your potentials to move into the external environment, the external environment itself is constructed in your brain based on the information coming in. So, you know, how do I warm up my body to do this activity? Holy shit, you lighten up your action maps. So what is cars used for otherwise? Warming up and getting ready and preparing action maps and updating action maps and maintaining action maps. Uh, <clears throat> I often think like you wake up in the morning and I have this one image that we use in the thing where the, the hip, there's a dim light coming from right. the hip joints, right? It's a it's like a, a flashlight, right? Right. And then it's very dim. And then it's like, okay, but you get up and you do some cars on your hip. And all of a sudden that area starts to, now that that flashlight's power is greater. So now it covers a greater area in its, in its expanse. And that is your potential. That is the, what your body will use moving forward to make decisions as to how movements should be achieved. Okay. Right? So they're not just joint circles, I guess we're saying. Anyway, <laughs> so those aren't going to do it. So you find these specific things and then you start to apply training. Now, cars yes. is training, right? We, we, we do training to improve cars. We bring you from shitty cars and we try to make improvements on your cars. But to make improvements on your cars requires specific training. Yes. Which are not cars. The, right. You said things like pails and rails. So let's just... You know, we can't go through the whole thing, but it's utilizing force in, uh, inputs and signals in order to create changes in the connective tissues of the biology that would be um, hindering your ability to create good cars, right? So pails and rails. So, you know, we don't use things that are, people might think that we have these acronyms and we're making shit up and we're, we're, the only reason we use the acronyms is because the the way that we're doing it provide it's different than what people do. So yeah, it just organizes everything better. It just organizes things better. But we're using the same physiological principles that you find in any physio physiology textbook. We don't have new or different um, research right. for what we do. We use the same research everyone does. Right. The only difference is that we're applying it with a very uh, highly tuned microscope at very specific targets, but it's training, you know, right. the words isometrics and eccentrics and, and concentrics and speed and all of these words appear. The only difference is, is that the order we put them in is for very specific reason. 100%. And I'd like to bring that up as well, because people will go, well, where's the research for this? And then we often say, we, the research for this, it, we use the research to create this. Right. So in other words, functional range systems and functional range conditioning, it is the amalgamation of research into a logical progression using the same physiological principles as any other training, but just honed and decisions were made that this goes before this because of this, 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 and this, and this, 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 and this, that's where the research is. Which is brilliant because what other people do is they try and create a guru system and then try and convince people to research it to prove their point. That's right. As opposed to using the research to, to make spit, it out, to spit right. out the system. Remember, so, we're not supposed to use science to prove a point. We're supposed to use science to try and disprove things. We're so, like, so 
from yes. decades of science, a lot of things yeah. have been disproven. And what's left is the information we have about isometrics, concentrics, eccentrics, and then you guys have organized it brilliantly well, so it's in a teachable format. But modern fitness today says, oh, I want to create this device and then I'll research it and then I'll try and pay researchers to prove why they should listen to me. And it's just absurd how people think nowadays. That's not how science is supposed to be used. It's it's ridiculous how wrong the industry has turned when it came from like an evidence-based or science-based issue. I think, I don't know if the, it's wrong. I think I think there's a there's a general misunderstanding as to what science is supposed to be doing. Right. Right. It, you can never read a scientific paper and get the answer. You have to read scientific, and then you have to expand that and then think about it in the context of everything else. Like it's a good example. I was talking to um, uh, Josh the other day about um, hypertrophy and stuff like that. And we were talking about whether or not you go to failure or not go to failure. So, you know, he was talking about this video where this person's like, you know, you shouldn't, you should never train to failure and training to failure is, you know, not what you should be doing. And then it's like, well, and then he goes, well, based on this evidence, there's some evidence that showed that with these lifts, you know, it, it doesn't make a difference unless it's in isolate it in less and less and less right. and less. There was a whole asterisk, bunch of lessons. Yeah. And then, and then I simply said, well, <laughs> that person doesn't understand the difference between practice and training. You would never train to failure or sorry, practice to failure you train to failure. And right. when you train to failure, you're doing it in an isolated environment to isolate tissue. So then the person goes, well, you know, in compound exercises, you know, the idea of going to failure didn't, uh, didn't really, you know, make a big difference, but it's like, but a compound exercise isn't an isolated exercise in that it's more of a practice of a, of a confined movement. Like sure. when you say do a snatch or a, a particular lift, and I, in my brain, I understand what you mean. That means that you've confined the variables of the motion, which means it's not inherently training of tissue. It's the practice of emotion. Practice of and a snatch. If, you, if, if you're trying to practice a snatch, yeah, don't fail. Like, why would you practice failing? But when you're trying to take, let's say, the anterior shoulder tissue and you want more musculature in the anterior delt because you want to be able to pull back whatever it is, right, 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 right? right? That requires that you take that tissue in isolation and make it fail so right. that you can recruit the maximal amount of motor units. And that's not, I mean, I, I, have, I, was, I had the, the privilege in, in kinesiology when I was did my undergrad to study with Digby Sale, who is, you know, um, these are, this is a person who's, who started or who pioneered this idea of uh, the specificity principle, Sale, S-A-L-E. And, and of course he would say that it's, it's just, did you activate the motor units? Yes or no. Right. And if you didn't, you didn't. Right? right. So, and the other thing is if you're doing a, a bench press and you're saying you have to press between this, these mill right there up here. No, 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 no. Down here. No, 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 no. Right there. Well, when you're pushing there, when the tissues that do that start, start to fail, even before they fail, right. you're going to start to compensate with other stuff anyway. So you're never going to hit the failure of the, or if you do, you're only hitting the failure of one line of the peck, not the entire peck. Right. So as you can see, this research doesn't, it, 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 it's research, it's, it's, it's conclusions, but the conclusions only mean something in the context of understanding what the conclusions mean. Like you would say, in the context of taking that bird's eye view, yeah. all of the literature 
And this is now just a piece of that literature. It's not something that overrides everything before it. Like, I know, I know it's obnoxious and people are gonna say, no one does this, but I swear I've seen it where people say, I'm evidence-based, I only care about research in the last year or the last two years. Yeah, they have like a, it's almost like a, a pride thing. Like I'm up to date, so I only care about the research in the last 10 years. Right. Well, that's, so you're telling me that any research done 30 years ago was completely useless? Like we went, we went to the fucking moon. <laughs> like we didn't know no, shit. Not, not important. Not important. Doesn't not matter. Important. What we did. Doesn't matter. But it, yeah, it wasn't so, on failure to tissue that was published this week. Man, there's a lot of uh, of our understanding as to how joint receptors work from early 1900s, 50s, like, 60s, 70s. Earlier for the joints themselves. I mean, right. well, that yeah, 50s, 60s. That's when we started to actually scrutinize training to determine what actually creates changes in strength. But even prior to that, I mean, anyway, yeah. let's, you know what, let's, let's go to your, your, so in other words, cars aren't going to do it. You need to specifically put things to attack certain things. So bring your, your case up and, and tell me what you found. Like, just give me, give us the, the rundown. Uh, sure. I, I only have a few photos here. These are the ones that I just happen to share to social. If anybody's interested in the case more and want to see more joint photos, I could always go over that with them. Uh, don't do that because you're going to get 5 million people. People within the FRS community, maybe. So I have just a couple. You narrow of that down a little more. <laughs> so I'll, show, the I'll just show hips first. Okay. Uh, by the way, this this client gave us permission. Uh, 100%. To this, so. this is Brandon. He's the retired pitcher. And this is his left leg, which is his lead leg, external he's, rotation. He's a righty. Yeah. See, I would love to have seen this cars during his career because i know i mean you've dealt with professional pitchers now and every time i see a pitcher that lead leg is a problem i, mean, I know yeah so right anyway. leg external and then as so those we are those, those are the actives those are actives <clears throat> and that's is that a before and after then that's 90 days apart 90 days apart so okay so i don't know what the exact but that's a significant difference i mean that's a you can see the knee on that side and then that's the left leg and this I mean, is that's huge. The lead leg got better. Yeah. And that's cold, right? That's cold findings. 100%. In other words, we no, don't warm no. people up. I don't do, we don't do before and afters. As a matter of fact, I, I poo-poo on before and afters with regards right. to range of motion. Um, for those of you watching, don't get fooled for that shit. If you see someone showing you, you know, they're in this much of a split and then five minutes later, they're in a full split because they did some isometric work. This is just neurological trickery. Anyone can do that. Anyone can temporarily convince their nervous system to allow a little bit more range to permanently convince your nervous system to integrate the range uh, into its existence is, is a completely different thing. So that's what you're showing here. So here's internal rotation of the right hip. Now, capsular space uh, movement. Now, how, okay. So to get to there, were you working a lot on the hip or what happened there? Like we, we, we picked a couple priorities and our focus for phase one, the first 90 days was hip, shoulder, spine. Okay. And specifically with the hip, what about the hip was the fo initial focus? Both internal and external rotation, because okay. this right here was his starting internal rotation. Yeah. And starting external rotation was here. So we just decided to attack it from both sides. I got lucky in the sense of like, I didn't have to work around a pitcher who was in season, who said, give me the minimum effective dose programming. I'm also still training and competing. Brandon came to me, said, I'm retired. I want to do anything I can to feel better. Just tell me what to do. Should I stop doing other things? So we were able to attack it from multiple angles. So we attacked both hip internal and external rotation. But 
for the intent of changing capsular space? Okay, so lots of things here. So number one, um, I'm assuming that he had problems in linear motions as well yes. in the head. Okay, so what I mean, linear motions, like when you chest flexion, extension, abduction, adduction, did you find you found these problems as well? Okay. This is, this is the most flexion he would have on that same right hip. So now we have right hip internal okay. over here, right hip flexion here. So in the 90 days, you said that you started with rotation. We're going to get back to that. In the 90 days, did you actually train hip flexion? Not once. Not once. That's huge. Not a part of his programming. Okay. So once again, guys, look at the screen, look at the top left. That's his flexion. Bottom left. That's his flexion. Cold, cold active ability. 100%. And the amount of hip flexion work was zero. Now let's go back and let's talk about this. So you decided to start with rotation and we talked about, let's define what a normal joint is. What is a hip joint? A hip joint is a ball and socket joint whereby the ball fits in the acetabulum and rotates in the acetabulum. Ergo, a hip that doesn't rotate is not a hip. Right. Um, now, if you have a, a hip that doesn't, let's say that the, the Utrecht is internal rotation on the, let's say the middle uh, diagram there, yep. right? The before picture, if you can circle that. <clears throat> so what you would have found was he would have had a certain amount of rotation, but then it would have locked. And then if you forcefully internally rotated his hip at that point, what would you have found? Or what did you find? I can show you with his cars what happens when he tries to rotate on a, on a pelvis in the beginning. Let's do it. Let's do it. If you guys are listening to this, uh, I advise you, of course, go to the YouTube uh, channel uh, to see the visuals. Um, I'll give you what I can. Let's actually, can we do the, do you have the hip cars? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm moving to it. So here's, okay, here we go. This, this is a three times speed. And you'll see that there's a lot of pelvic hiking to accomplish the workspace. Yep. And afterwards, there's still some, Yep. but significantly less. And then the back view shows more. So I'll, I'll actually control this one, if I could drag here. Mm -hmm. You'll see how much, look at the angle of the pelvis, how much hike has to happen. He laterally shifts, look at the curve of his spine to accomplish what he believes his hip workspace is independent of other things. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as he tries to internally rotate, he just hikes more and then just goes into extension. So this is a, a zone two transition that you're pointing out for those of you who are in FRS system. And, and then look, look that, at the transition now, look how the pelvis stays level just 90 days later, yep. not hiking it to get it into that abducted position. Okay, he's just able to abduct and then he's able to rotate and then send it back. It's still, once again, it's only 90 days difference, but imagine a year from now, like if he stays the course, yep. imagine a year from now, if he could get that much of a change in the first 90 days, I'll, I'll go back again to the, the first one. Uh, here, like, look at how much has to move to accomplish the volume of space around that left hip. Mm -hmm. His whole his whole spine contributes. His pelvis is at forty five degrees to accomplish it, just to get a workspace around it, which is not a hip. So okay, so we define that as not a hip. So it's it's it. So in other words, if we define what a joint is, you can define it as the, the space between two bones that allow the bones to move independently of one another, and that doesn't happen here. There is no right. hip. And the first thing that we, we look at is rotation. There's a reason it's because that's the capsular pattern for the hip. When something goes wrong with the hip, generically, the first thing that's gonna be lost is gonna be the rotation component, specifically internal rotation. Um, so when we test internal rotation, 
we find now if there is no rotation in the hip right if that ball's not moving in the socket then for sure there's not going to be any flexion either so right. for flexion to occur this has to occur there has to be a rolling right into flexion right but if that hip does not have any capsular space in it it's stuck and there's no rolling then your hip moves like this which is why hip flexion not hip flexion and exactly what you're saying like we didn't work on hip flexion we worked on hip rotation we spent three months working on hip rotation and we got a significant and by the way we didn't just get flexion abduction improved extension improved everything improved i was just i had to i the social media is limited to only so many slides in a single post so i just showed off because this was a significant one like for the flexion to improve that much just by improving the axial rotation of the hip this is just setting the foundation right this is phase one of his programming this is what's setting up phase two and phase three to go well is because now we've opened up so much capsular space that we could actually access the other degrees of freedom to train them if we so want to mm -hmm. I, I also want to put up uh mention something that people would find interesting that idea of centration there's mm -hmm. a concept out there that somehow this is the the socket that somehow the joints are supposed to the the head of the femur should centralize in the joint before it rotates every um, single breath of every single movement in every direction yeah, that doesn't happen that doesn't <laughs> happen right and it, it's not how it's not how mechanics occur when when you're in a fallen socket joint in order for me to you know go that way there has to be the actual head, it, there's a parabolic curve and it's rotating. It actually curves in space, right? right. It curves forward in space. It doesn't curve on an axis. If right. it curved on an axis, the capsule surrounding the, the joint would never be stimulated. Right. So if I could centralize the joints and just move within here, such that there was no tension on the outer rims of the joint, the capsule would never engage. And if the capsule sense. never engages, your brain would have no idea where you are in space. Um, so that idea of centralizing a joint, it, it's a, it's a. In my kinesiology program in school, biomechanics of human movement was my favorite class. And to find yeah. out that all of it was built on a foundation of if you happen to be existing via strings and pulleys. Yes. If so. If so. If you meet the person that exists via pulleys, this <laughs> is how force would act on their body. Exactly. <laughs> Let's get the shoulder here because I know yep. we can't go on forever. Let's take a look. Once again, I just want to highlight this was yeah. his pitching arm, as in for decades, 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 decades. He mm -hmm. abused the living hell out of this shoulder as a whip. And it's not even a beat. Like, listen, it's if, if he evolved, he he yeah. he set forth the course of 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 um, biological evolution. And using it in the environment he used it in, the body responded by completely altering his biology to right. suit the, the environmental demand. So when you take a pitcher shoulder, a pitcher shoulder is not a, a dancer shoulder. It's a pitcher shoulder. And yeah. it's defined by the fact that pitching did this to him. Right. Um, so what Hunter's trying to say is that he spent a lot of time working against the the things that would make his shoulder healthy like independent motion um so what he's what we're pointing out here is that to make that change that is a in, that's an enormous change we can make that change even quicker in in let's call them normal people right. um, who are not pitchers but the extent of that improvement is is remarkable 
Like uh, normally if this was an average client that just came down the street, like I, if I shared this photo, I'd be like, here's a, a small change my client made in the first 90 days. Mm -hmm. But for my picture, this was a large change in the mm -hmm. first 90 days. Now that's what you, in this case, you cared about, you go ahead and pull up the, the cars, I'm assuming, but you cared about the, the health of his joint at this point. 100%. Were, I, also, were, I also want to show external rotation. This is active. Passive is much more than that because he's a pitcher, but active was less than horizon, like uh, less than there, even though his passive can go significantly higher in that direction, active capabilities were not there. And then for the first time ever, we're training active capabilities of the shoulder to externally rotate. And this obviously had a pretty significant improvement for the first 90 days because it's the first time he's training active mm -hmm. rotation of the shoulder in this manner. Yeah, if you actually straighten his wrist, you'll see it would be actually even more impressive right. to, to see the, the results. But so that's external. So again, it, it was, you see in here, the FRA gives you those numbers. So I would argue with people if flexion was the goal, right? If someone said, you know, for example, let's say that this particular client then went to a CrossFit box and he wanted to, there you go. And he wanted to, uh, you know, do Olympic lifting and they go, well, you know, you need more flexion. You know, a lot of people would literally take a, a dumbbell and drive the shoulder into flexion. And I can't, I cannot tell you how bad an idea that is. If right. your shoulder doesn't rotate and, and it moves as one chunk, then you can force that shoulder back. But all you're doing is forcing that chunk to go together, which means that it's going to compensate by moving elsewhere. Now, these improvements in <clears throat> flexion, are they, did you do any flexion training yet with them there? No, strictly rotation. We worked on capsular space, shoulder internal and external rotation and cars every day. And these are just the starting benefits. Like this is the benefit of starting at the foundation is getting these initial improvements. So much so that if he then said, I still want to improve shoulder flexion as we move into the next couple of months of his programming, now would be a really good time to introduce it. But mm -hmm. by, let's just say the example you gave, like he came to me saying, some coach told me I need more shoulder flexion. Can you help me? But we had those initial shoulder rotation finding. It would be a huge waste of time, or at least you're not a waste of time, but you're swimming upstream. We all know that you're swimming upstream by trying to address the flexion without the capsular space components. You are, you are trying to take tissue that is limited at the capsular level, but address it from a superficial standpoint. That's right. I mean, you can get results doing things that are not the most effective things, but they right. get there. You, they get you there. But we're looking for the minimal effective dose here, um, so that energies can be put towards other goals that they might have. For their condition and then his workspace you'll see why can't i move it there we go i'll just let it play you'll see very little rotation of the actual shoulder is bending you see bending in his elbow uh, a close deflection you see the hand starts to contort as well starting to get more axial rotation Mm -hmm. workspace <clears throat> from the back view you'll see a lot more contribution of his mid back and spine a little turn he's side bending a little bit we have a little more of a statue body here oh that's huge i mean <clears throat> you see the scapula uh, on that on that last one you see the scapula is still moving but the spine itself on the left side like and the, sh the, the shadows yeah. make a big difference you see how much the spine moves there yeah, look at like the TL junction. That's way better. Okay, so if you're watching, look at the TL junction specifically and look at the compensation right there. It's like the whole spine laterally flexed, right? Right. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, that's a huge difference. Uh, I see you that's also- That's throwing uh, arm. 
yeah, you see, you have also have ankles in there. You have toes. Yeah, so we have see that you really have yeah, ankle there you changes. Go. And once oh, again, oh, you go. it doesn't look like much. It's a millimeters of difference. Like if I was to measure that mm -hmm. distance to that distance, it's a few millimeters. Mm -hmm. But for getting back to activities, like getting back to running, getting back to exercises, getting back to squats, those few millimeters make all the difference in the world when it comes from a force distribution standpoint. Like it doesn't visually look like much in a side by side, but for movement <clears throat> human body, it is everything to get back a few degrees in some of these joints. I think that, I mean, you're, you're downplaying it, but those are incredible improvements. I mean, those are, those are legitimate improve. Again, these are not, this is not a warm up and then, you know, get more because you're, this is, he walks in, does the test in the same standardized way that we do the test all the time. Right. He doesn't warm up. He actually drives two hours to come see me. So he has sits in a car for a couple hours, then comes yeah, in. That's, the, that, those are, are significant changes. Yeah. But, um, you know what, Hunter? I realize that our time is, is, is short here. With regards to this case, is there anything else that you think you want to add um, just for that, you know, the, the initial, that was the initial, you know, 90 days, right? So obviously it, it continues. And then the specificity of what goes from there, like once you get back to a baseline, now our system allows you to say, make decisions as to where you want to go. What particular quality do you want to improve? Is there anything else on this case that you think people might want to hear? The, the freedom of the, where we could take it next is my favorite part, because like right now <clears throat> we spent the first three months working on the foundation, like workspace over everything, getting back workspace, bringing back articular independence. And for <clears throat> most joints, we accomplished a really good headway in that regard. <clears throat> so now as we've opened up more range, we're going to backfill the range that we opened up with strength and control. Like that's just how our, our, our flow chart works. So I'm gonna start filling in strength and control. Um, he also is now doing a little more kin stretch because I told him about how we kind of call it the ultimate GPP. He's gonna try and get kin stretch in just to start working on other qualities and, and joints in other directions as well to kind of bring up natural um, progression with a little bit of everything. But now it just comes down to, I told him it, it what he wants to do with his body moving forward because it's not now sports specific because he doesn't play baseball anymore now it can be just tell me what you want to do and the cool thing when i shared the most recent post about him is i asked him a question when he when he left his last appointment and i said do you notice a difference because clearly there's a difference like we could all agree there's a difference but do you notice a difference just while doing this work like is it just doing the homework i gave you that it feels better because that would be an okay answer because clearly things are changing, but it's not exactly the answer I want. But I got the answer I actually wanted out of it, which I didn't lead into. He, he gave it to me naturally, which was everything feels better. Now, when I work out, I don't feel like a retired athlete working out. I actually feel normal. I actually feel like I could access everything. My side, my left side and my right side feels a little more even to each other. I can play with my kids. I can get on the ground. I can do activities I want and not feel like that beat up retired athlete anymore. Like, so for me, like, we've almost already overcome the biggest hurdle there is, which is like, we just want these people to feel good when they eventually retire. I didn't expect it to happen that quickly, but he already gave me that answer. It's like, I could finally go to my normal activities. I could work out without feeling like I'm gonna aggravate an old baseball thing now. So, so, so joint health is a trainable quality. Joint health is a trainable quality and it is foundational. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything else you wanna do. So even if, even if he said like, now I wanna do CrossFit, now I wanna do powerlifting, like, even if that was like the state from the beginning, joint health has to be the foundation because we can only build on those other qualities of strength, endurance, power, agility, all those other things with a good foundation. 
And you, you can't do that upon a foundation of shitty joints. And like, and of course, like you did the initial, and we're, we're talking a lot about what we did for these specific findings, but of course you're also training. But the idea here is that now your selection of external exercises, it is uh, combined to the findings of the potentials that you have Right. in order to determine whether or not that exercise is appropriate for you. So right. it's not like we're not <clears throat> training everything else as well. Right. Um, and it's not like the system doesn't allow for, people might think that what we're running is some kind of loosey goosey, you know, flexible, make everyone hypermobile system. But no, I mean, we run it with, with West Side barbell lifters and we run it with right. Olympic lifters and we run it with, you know, the strongest people that you find. And it, it's, and, and, and not only does the system allow you to program for these joint deficiencies, but the programming then becomes the way that you understand all strength programming. Right. And that, right. That's, that's the best thing about it is when somebody gets past their like initial programming, like Brandon recently has, like there's no more convincing mm -hmm. because of how good he feels. He just goes, he, he now changes it from how do I fit this into what I want to do it's how do I fit in the other things that I want to do around this important thing that I found out about the human body. Brilliant. Listen, man, I, I appreciate uh, your time as always. It's a pleasure. Uh, you check out uh, Hunter uh, on Instagram at Hunter Fitness. Uh, he is one of our lead instructors. Um, you just got back from England, I believe. Yep. And you had some, college. some awesome food poisoning to bring back. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. I have a coffee shop that I won't be uh, revisiting when I go back. Yeah, right. Was it was it uh, scorching there when you were there? Or was it? Uh... Oh, it, it was the very first few days of the heat wave where everyone was just starting to talk about the panic of wait, it's 35 degrees Celsius already. I don't know what it is Celsius, but it was hot. It's almost like everyone's like, I, I never saw this coming. They're like, yeah. you brought California with you. And then it was like a joke for the first couple of days. They're like, oh, no, this is actually a serious heat wave coming. This oh, no, we actually have a global <laughs> problem here. <laughs> There might be a global issue. Yeah. I don't know, but there it's not funny. It's not it's not funny, man. I mean, I mean, yeah. Talking about science and, and the understanding of it, there's another topic that we can get into with people who just don't anyway. Um next, for next our purposes, podcast. next podcast. <laughs> for our purposes, this was very helpful. I hope that people uh listening uh, got a little insight into your your process uh and, and into how you work. Um so this is a good one. We should do, we should do some more cases. Uh, next one that comes up that's interesting, let me know and we'll jump on and, and do another sesh. Sounds good, sir. Thank you. Very good, my friend. We'll talk to you soon.